I appreciated very much being in the small groups with you in the course of this retreat. I'm very touched each time I come to IMS how I find people very forthcoming um, in this context, willing to explore and find out and inquire and look. Thank you for that. It's really a privilege to be in this seat. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Patricia. I'm remembering one person today who, um, as they were exploring and they wanted to look at the the heart area and the chest area and um, inquiry about forgiveness and what limited that and etc. And as we were inquiring together with the whole group, and it was very much all of us, that all of everybody's presence there, everybody's interest, attention, depth, Um, curiosity, care. As we were inquiring, I think he must have said about five times, oh, I'm surprised, right? Things kept showing themselves to him that he hadn't expected to see. More space arose behind his chest. He had an insight about something in relation to he and the world. He had perceptions opening up of images that were felt images of the quality inside the chest, and that changed as he explored. And he kept saying the words, oh, I'm surprised. He was genuinely able to be surprised. To be able to be surprised is a blessed condition. We are not surprised when we think we already know. We are unsurprisable by the world, by our inner world, by our outer world. When we're limiting our perception, wittingly or unwittingly, consciously or unconsciously, limiting our perception to a frame that lets us not be surprised anymore. If we consider right view in the teachings that heads up the path, heads up the eightfold path, we could say, Right view, but if we take it in our normal language, let's say, you know, tell me what the right view is. Tell me the way I should be thinking about this. Tell me the way I should be seeing the world. You know, so when I'm 12, I think that was something like, well, is there a God or is there not a God? You know, just tell me. Oh, sometimes it looks like that. there is, sometimes it looks like there isn't. Coming to Dharma practice, if we're just approaching it only intellectually without much more inquiry, on any level, intellectual, um, and our practice can sometimes then go to, so, is this an illusion? Is it not an illusion? Is it real? Is it not real? Is my experience real or not real? Sometimes people get caught in that paradigm. Just tell me, is it, what is true? But right view, actually, is much more interesting than that. It's not telling us... um, those kinds of truths, what it's saying, as I understand it, is that there are results to our actions, that everything we do is consequential to the entire cosmos. Everything we do has a consequence. Everything, nothing is inconsequential. Everything in the cosmos, known and unknown, inner and outer, Right view tells us that we are ongoing intention and the inheritance of those actions individually, collectively. Now that can feel very sobering, and it is sobering. I think it's, you know, there is nothing inconsequential about what we do. And doing here isn't just our actions of body, it's also the ways that we conceive and the ways we perceive 
phenomenal existence. So from this perspective, we could say that right view is that we, you, I, am an open system. I'm an open system, opened out and in to the entirety of the cosmos. Because every action of body, speech or mind, of thought, conception, perception, has an effect. It isn't just an impact in my little world. How we are affects the whole. So wrong view from this perspective would be that we are a closed system. We as individuals are a little closed system. So let's consider this a little bit, this possibility. Sometimes it feels like we're a closed system. Doesn't mean it's right. (laughs) Doesn't mean it's an accurate view. But sometimes it can feel like we're a closed system and we've spoken some about this in this retreat. The perception that I'm this little individual psyche over here and there's this sort of big world out there. And this system, even if intellectually I might agree that of course it affects everything else, and I even know that from certain kinds of science and measuring, you know, that somebody waves a hand over, you know, in that part of the world and it affects the water in that part of the world. We might know that intellectually, but to know that moment to moment, that we are what we are as an open system, and nothing is inconsequential. it can feel like we are a closed system at times. I remember 20 years ago, I think, going to a zoo. And I don't know if I was accurate in my perception, but this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful gorilla kind of breaks my heart that uh, he was in a zoo. But my perception in looking at him, that seeing into his eyes and he into mine and feeling that intelligence, that incredible sort of bright intelligence. I don't know what his experience was, but the way I was interpreting it was that it looked like that he, it looked like that he was inside, looking out. In a way, in his case, in an accurate way that he wasn't free. He wasn't free on a very fundamental level, he was uh, not free, he was in a zoo. But it had that perce- I had that feeling of him kind of looking out as if the freedom on many levels could not be accessed. That closed system, I'm in here and you all are out there. One way that we could, from this perspective of an open system, think about awakening is to be able to know and live as an open system. To know and live from that perspective that nothing is inconsequential. But what might be in the way of us knowing ourselves as an open system? And I want to make this concrete because I'm sure you all have known this at times, right? There may have been openings here on this retreat, uh, perceptions that open up where your previous view kind of opens for a bit and you go, oh, wow, here I am, kind of connected in a bigger picture. Or as somebody said today in the group, um, sometimes they said, I notice that I'm striving. In the striving posture, I'm kind of tightening. And I'm striving to sort of, in the, in, the, in the group, to try and say the things succinctly and precisely. And when I relax the striving, they said, I have a perception that we're all a kind of flock, like a flock of birds, where there isn't one bird that's the chief of that, but I think they take different turns. But we're kind of flying together. We're flying together. And there are many reports from different ways that things open for us in practice 
where these kinds of understandings um, come. And I think it's some of what people really appreciate about practice, that the fixed views can open out directly, not only intellectually, that's an important part, but also through our direct perception, things can open out. But what might be in the way of being able to know this? What might be in the way of being able to live with what what would that take to live in that way and what might be in the way? I think sometimes what's in the way of uh, uh, opening to this is that perhaps we don't know it's possible. Right? Our view, we've never been taught that such a thing is possible, so our view is that we carry on with the same ways of knowing, the same ways of perceiving. And I'll just try and get through this small gap between birth and death as best I can, um, you know, from this perception of me in here and you out there, and I'll try and have some good experiences. And right, We may not know it's possible. I think another thing that makes us shy of this when we start to open to this in practice we open out people speak about sitting silently and widening and sensing and it gets very still and there's a sense of being part of something much bigger or being something much bigger and then as one person reported today and then I noticed the pressure there's somewhere else I ought to be there's something else I should be doing And as they explored, saying, ah, there's some view that I'm not quite allowed to know this. Because there's something beautiful, at ease, wholesome, beneficial, that's blessed here. But the the habit is to go forward, to be looking for that um, arrival place somewhere else further along the line. Who is it that said, some, some famous person said, human beings are characterized by, always, uh, by the fact that they always think they should be somewhere other than where they are. <laughs> right? I think another thing that makes it difficult to uh, open to this possibility is that sometimes we have um, a sort of danger signs of, oh, don't want to be too open, don't want to be too much of an open system. Last time I was that open didn't it wasn't good right sometimes it may be we fear that if I'm open I'm going to be flooded with the pain of the world I'll I'll have to open up and feel all of what's here and I I would posit that as we open we do open to more of our and the world's pain and that as we understand it through practice we, cr- we open to discover and create portals where that pain can be known, can impact us, but doesn't have to stick. There is less and less for it to stick to. It can come in, it can inform a Buddha. They can respond. But it's not sticking to his, their psyche. Why not? Because a Buddha is one who knows that as they go deeper and deeper, I could say it this way, this is a sort of poetic reference, as they go deeper and deeper in, they find themselves more and more available to the out. That what they find at the center is no core no final arrival place, that there is pure subjective, pure subjectivity, pure subject, receiving and responding, receiving and responding, and that our practice cultivates this chitta to let us be more malleable, let this chitta be more flexible in the way it can receive and respond. I think sometimes if we've had experience of being very open, sometimes they are coinciding with times where we've been hurt. And so something in us doesn't want to open up too much again because I might get really hurt again. Again, I think this is part of our practice, the faith to keep going there, to digest our old residues and to 
find out now that we have our intactness more, our ground, our mindfulness, our investigation, our refuge, that maybe it's not going to be the same. Or maybe the hurt still hurts. But the way I can hold it, the way I can frame it, the way I can work with it, starts to show and yield more possibilities. Sometimes I think the fear of this open possibility is that I will lose my autonomy. I'll kind of merge into the world and I'll never be able to find myself again. Somebody spoke about this in a meeting the other day. That I'll lose my distinctness, my distinctness, and I'll just become a kind of mush at everybody's mercy. right? Or just overworking, only responding. Only responding on this horizontal level of relationships and each other and losing something that is upright, that is vertical, that has its integrity. But these are not but, these are fears. These are places for us to explore if we feel called upon to deepen, if we feel beckoned to go beyond what we already know, to go beyond our existing conceptions and frameworks of ourself and of our cosmos, then we will be beckoned to do that work that allows us to see things in new ways and to see things in multiple ways. One of the... um, Let me just see if there's anything more there. Last night, Akinchino talked us through this brilliant point in history where the Buddha shifted the view um, for those who wanted to practice with him and turned the wheel of Dharma from, as Akinchino described, from a cosmological view where everything was conceived in relation to to the bigger picture, so to speak, in relation to particular views of the the gods or the deities or the duties in that way, and shifted to a psychological view, a view where the psyche and the, um, the being here is where the work can be done. And I think there's some reference in there that one isn't a, a Brahmin by birth, you know, a high caste practitioner. One isn't a, a Brahmin by birth, but by action, by their actions in this world that you're not just given and born into something, that the cosmology was brought, in a sense, down to size in a way that became potentially more liberating and opened the perspective. At the time, this would be radical, radical. Really, take a moment to reflect on a worldview that suddenly shifts into realizing, wow, I can attend in certain ways that can bring liberation here and now. That would be pretty radical. I would like to posit that in that shift, it didn't necessarily mean that suddenly all of that backdrop, all of that cosmological perspective or view suddenly disappeared from those beings who practiced. But it may be that they weren't giving full devotion, full um, reality status to that being the framework, the conception of how reality is, the final truth status to that cosmological view. They had another perspective. They were given another perspective of the psyche, of the psychological view, the speaking of the psyche. As modern people, we have a psychological framework. Largely, there are many modern people who have religious frameworks as well, or you know, perceptions um, other than the scientific materialist view or other than the psychological view as central. But largely, even within those religious frameworks, I think this place of the psyche, of course, has come to the foreground, the individual psyche, very, very much more than it would have been 2,000 uh, years ago, 2,500 years ago. 
it has gained a central status. We have gained as individuals, in a modern view, central status. And at worst, we know where that can go, right? That what I want, I will get. Not looking at the consequences to that, about the collective, the earth, etc. But at best, this is also, it's, it's also beautiful. What has come forth is the um, appreciation of individual expression, of um, uniqueness. Individuation, where we can be distinct and have our own views and have our own perspectives that aren't governed only by our collective uh, culture, actually. This is beautiful. But in that, do we also, can we also recognize that there is always a way of conceiving the cosmos? We didn't just pare it down to the psyche and now we've got rid of the mystical stuff and now we're the ones who really know how it is. There's always a cosmology operating. There's always a view of what this bigger backdrop, this bigger picture is. We can't help it. There will be one. And what is the one that can be unquestioned sometimes for some of us moderns, modernist types, is that this backdrop to myself, this backdrop to this psyche, is a world um, of materiality, of things that... What? At worst, I think it can be, here's a backdrop against which my personal drama unfolds, right? Such has become the sort of predominance of the psyche. And what is the cosmology there? What is the view of um, what this is? What is this cosmos that we're living in? And sometimes the view is that this materiality is inert, It is not terribly valuable. It's valuable insofar as what it can give to me, what I can gain from it, what I can extract from it. It's alive only to the extent that I can sort of measure it. You know, I can measure certain quantifiable versions of aliveness through my microscopes or through my marvelous kinds of tools or technology. But that that cosmos can be quite a flat one, a cosmology that has lost dimensions, that has lost juice, that has lost eros, that has lost soul, that has lost imagination, that has lost multiple ways of knowing, that are not accorded truth status, that have not been and are no longer accorded validity in the name of the truth. And if we're not careful, we could be quite dogmatic about this. They can be, as some you know, great philosophers start to point out, there's always a myth in every culture. And the current myth might be we are the ones. We are the ones who now see things clearly. We are the ones who have the naked view, the view of the way things really are. We are these ones. We've done away with all that extra peripheral stuff and we can, we can really hone in there. This is the myth, we could say, that stands at the beginning of the modern view, the, mos- the modern cosmology. And I think I'm bringing this up in case, <clears throat> excuse me, in case unwittingly we're applying 
the same view unquestioned into our mindfulness practice. If we're at all playing a reductionist game, if we're at all flattening our relationship with the cosmos in the name of bare attention, in the name of, oh, I'm seeing something clearly when I just see it through this very particular lens. And what I would really love for us is to be able to open up the view of what that mindfulness might be for, that it's not necessarily just for the contact, the bare contact that we can see. As I understand it, the mindfulness is in relation to a number, many other factors of mind, of investigation, of energy, of concentration, etc., etc. Because what can it show us? What can it show us about how the way that we're seeing the world, the way we're seeing phenomena, directly begets the result, right? We know this from science now, that the way that we look directly not only influences but brings forth, we could say, is dependently arising with what we see. So think of it in, let me think of it in terms of um, somebody today was exploring working with pain in their body and they said, yeah, I'm with the pain and I'm working with it in a certain way and I'm close up and I'm with attention right there with it and I'm uh, be able to uh, work with the reactivity, etc., etc. And then they said, and sometimes I bring my attention wider. I come about as if I'm three feet from the body and I'm with what is ostensibly the same pain. And I'm sure many of you have had these experiences. I'm ostensibly with the same pain. But actually, I perceive it completely differently from there. Right? It's no longer this dense particular thing. And as they were coming forth with the vocabulary for this experience, they said, actually, it's much more flickery. It's much less dense. It's less solid. And then we came together to the word. The perception was that it was like stardust. It was a little bit more like stardust. So what had been a very, very solid pain, as if that was the absolute truth of it, because that's how it seems at first, isn't it? It's like, this is the absolute truth. There's pain, and there's me who can be mindful of it, and there's me, this individual psyche, and I can be mindful of my pain, and hopefully I can work with my reactivity. There's more. There's more. Yes, let's work with our reactivity, because when we do, we have more flexibility. We have more flexibility in how we attend to the pain. And when we have more flexibility, what's possible for us? We can open our attention to a wider vantage point and then the perception changes. It might still hurt in that moment, but her perception completely shifted of what the pain was. If we extrapolate that further without limit, what might be possible for us as the chitta becomes more malleable, less fixed in its view, less fixed in its reactivity, what might be possible in the inquiry and exploration about how the ways of seeing, the ways of perceiving experience and what we beget, what comes forth, what yields itself to our perception? And therefore, the implication of how that affects our view of ourself, of each other, of the cosmos. So don't stop the inquiry with bare attention. This is a tool in the service. It's not a reductionist view that finally I've got to the final truth. Perception, one of the five skandhas, one of the five kandhas, is empty. There is not one final perception where we can put our feet up and say, I'm done now. Right? There are skillful perceptions and there are unskillful perceptions. There are ways of looking at ourself and the world that yield more wisdom, more kindness, individually and collectively, and there are perceptions that are lethal. There are perceptions that are... Um, limiting their perceptions that shut down and shave off aspects of the psyche that we may not even know we are missing until they start to yield themselves forward to us.
From this perspective, perception is a gift. Perception is an opportunity. An opportunity to widen the range of who and what we thought we were, who and what we think the world is, what the backdrop is, what materiality is. Perception is an opportunity. Opportunity has, in the middle of that word, I found out recently, it has the word porta, meaning door. Perception is a doorway, is a doorway to possibility. And perceptions that are skillful support wise view, support right view, support our understanding of the Four Noble Truths, that perceptions that lead to the reduction of suffering individually and collectively are skillful, wholesome. Perceptions that lead to the increase of suffering are not. So how can we take this opportunity? How can we open this doorway of perception such that our practice, we can be surprised. We can keep being surprised. We can be in a journey of discovery. One example I like is um, if there is no one particular perception, we can try on different ones. We can play. So think about it. The view of the heart. Let's think about the heart area. The view from the heart surgeon, the view from the doctor or the view from more modern science would require the kind of heart that it sees. And what is the kind of heart that it sees? It will see a heart that is a pump, that is functional, and that we can measure and find out how fit you are. Right? Perfect. Wonderful. Great that we have that. But it's one view. Another view of the heart would be the psychological, the modern psychological view of the heart, is this too begets the kind of heart that it sees. So if we're looking from that perspective, we will see a heart that is very personal, that the material that arises in it is mine, that its origin is my childhood, that there's nothing before that, that the first cause was there, and this is the kind of heart that I will see. And that too is beautiful. That too is a gift. That too can allow us to touch and work in sophisticated and beautiful healing ways that can open up the territory of the heart. But it's one perception. It's not the final perception of heart. What does the view of the... We can think of many others. One I was reading recently, that I'm going to give you one of the views of the emotions of the heart from the Celtic, the uh, older traditional perspective and this comes from John O'Donohue and remember earlier in the retreat we were looking and I was re- uh, giving this possibility from the poem from Wilfred, Wilfred Owen about we are the clay that has grown tall right? so this is from John O'Donohue about our heart he says often the joy you feel does not belong to your individual bio- biography but to the clay out of which you are formed. Right? Now, let that drop for a moment. That it's only the very individual view that would have us in this closed system where what happens within this sphere has its origins here. Open through your feet open through every moment of bare attention you've had with the pad of your feet in your walking meditation this week. What ways of knowing might we have forgotten that don't have more ultimate truth status necessarily, but can inform and open our perception 
of who and what we are and what this system is. So he says, the joy you feel does not belong to your individual biography, but to the clay out of which you were formed. Sorrow deep enough to paralyze you. Don't interfere. Recognize this emotion belongs more to your clay than to your mind. We forget our clay has a memory that preceded our mind. This isn't just poetic, right? You can trace the, 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 the formation of, the, of evolution in that. We forget that our clay has a memory that preceded our minds. Regardless of how modern we seem, we still remain ancient. Siblings of one clay. Siblings of one clay. And he, had to, he goes on and on to talk about how you might be with a beloved and you would know their body well enough. And this could also be yours too, right? Don't, we don't always have to think of beloved in our, also our limited view of that one particular other. But you might know your belo- beloved's body well enough that you can imagine the clay, where that clay had been before, that had come to form her. You could sense the blend of different, sorry, you could, you could sense the blend of different sensibilities and tonalities in her clay. Maybe some came from um, beside the, a lake. Some came from places where nature was expanded and lonely. If you were to feel into her clay, feel into your clay. What does that do to your perception of your heart. Why would we imagine that one view is more real than another? Would we be open to multiple perceptions and that skill would know which doorway, which porta can I travel through now? Yes, right now it's really skillful to look into my history. I have gained so much benefit from the woman who dragged me out of Gaia House, the meditation center in England 20 years ago and said, it's very good, beautiful practice here, but you need to do some therapy. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm really grateful to her. I'm really grateful to her, right? But what happens if we're allowed to go through different portas and open up the range that we could know, and and like in the four foundations of mindfulness, different porters, different opportunities that we can have together, they can exist together, that we can know something body as body, we can know Vedana, we can know Chitta, we can know Dhammas, they can all be known and the Chitta is malleable enough to know which doorway of perception is skillful right now. Ah yeah, right now it's really helpful to know is this pleasant or unpleasant. This is so helpful. It's dropping all of that papancha, all of that proliferation of my mind. Great, let me bring it to this. Wow. Brings relief, brings clarity, brings precision, brings the the reduction of reactivity. Opens things up such that the chitta becomes less fixated, less dogmatic, about what it thinks it's seeing, and therefore more available to the porters that we have available to us. And the heart of the mystic may not be so personal. The heart of the mystic may perceive or have the porter, the doorway of seeing from the heart that sees the cosmos in a completely other way than the pump or the personal development or the um, landscape completely other way. Let's not reduce the possibility of how things can be known. The emptiness of perception will allow us to play, to open the range, to let the juice really flow through our practice. I want to read you a story. This is a a, a modern, even more modern than modern, 
don't know if you call it postmodern, but it's 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 more uh, from the quantum the quantum incredible quantum storytelling. Beautiful. So try this perception on, if you will. And the uh, piece is called "We Are We Are Giants." When we gaze at the enormity of the universe with its billions of swirling galaxies, it seems natural to conclude that we are very small. When we see a universe that extends trillions upon trillions of kilometers, it is reasonable to think we are insignificant in the cosmic scale of things. However, this common sense view of ourselves is radically mistaken. We are not small creatures. In the overall scale of the universe, we are giants. Imagine you have a ruler. Do you call them that? I think this person might be American who wrote this book, but ruler. They the same length here, 30 centimeters, 12 inches. Imagine you have a ruler um, from the largest scale of the known universe to the smallest. At the largest, we see hundreds of billions of galaxies, each containing billions of stars like our sun. At the smallest, we travel deep within the core of an atom to the world of quarks, and then further to the foundation of existence and what is called the Planck distance. If we were to place humans on that ruler, do you know where we would fall? Some of you do, I know this. Um, we would fall, drum, drum roll. <laughs> it's not, I'm not trying to do that. But it's this back and forth with the glasses. We would fall roughly in the middle zone. Actually, we are slightly on the larger scale, as shown in the accompanying illustration. So the stunning insight from science, therefore, is that there is more smallness within us than there is bigness outside us. (laughs) There is more smallness within us then there is bigness outside us. Just take a moment. I'm not positing it as an absolute truth. It, this, this one can even be measured now. You know, normally we are measured, measuring things, reduce things in very particular ways, but try it on for a moment. Try it on. And what does that mean to try it on? We have to suspend a little bit the what is more commonly the wallpaper view. What is your wallpaper view? Wallpaper meaning the unquestioned conception of the cosmos. Be probably, like I remember my friend when we were 17, looking under the stars, going, God, I'm so insignificant, right? So tiny. And yes, on one level, that's also true. This isn't to prop up our narcissism or make us more big-headed. It's another view. Try it on. Soften the conception if we can. What does that mean then when you sit down in meditation and you close your eyes and you breathe? There's more smallness in there than there is bigness out there. How would you respect this creature when you sat down tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock? How might you bow when you took your seat, when you took your cushion, bow in not knowing, bow in, wow, I can't, I can't wrap my mind around this. I can't wrap it and seal it and explain it. But can it draw me, can it beckon me to find out? And what does that mean then when I touch the pain in my body or feel the spaciousness between the organs? What does that mean? How will I attend if I try on this view? There are lots more such 
interesting stories or perceptions that I could have us try on, but I don't think there'll be time for all of them. Maybe we can play another day. All right, but maybe a few for now. Let's make it really, let's really try it on a serious, I mean, it's play, but it's also very serious practice because our perceptions completely will guide our action the more range of possibility, the more we have the chance to know this open system where nothing is inconsequential and that the ways of seeing and the ways of knowing are part of what makes consequences. So let's try it on for a minute, however many people you can see from where you are. Some of you will only see back, some of you will only see me, um, and I see lots. Right, but I want you. We, I'll try on three perceptions. We can try on three perceptions, and you know these aren't just intellectual games, which would be fine if they were. But because you've been practicing for seven days, the chitta is more malleable. It doesn't necessarily. It doesn't mean suggestible, because we're not making a, a suggestion that you take on and then say, "Oh, that's the truth," right? It's trying on perceptions. What leads to more? Wisdom, compassion, openness, skill, ethics, valuing, etc. And what does not? So first one, from the ground up. Don't even try them from the head down. That's another view where we think we're located up here. It's another central solar system cosmological view that this sun is the, the sort of origin and center. It's the new God, the new center of the solar system. and Everything starts there. Really? It's good for knowing certain things. Incredible, that view. Really helpful for understanding brain chemistry and all the gifts that that has given us. So many gifts. But to make it an absolute truth? What might we miss? What depth of soul might we be bereft from knowing. So from the ground up, letting your, firstly letting your eyes close, getting your ground, literally your earth ground at this moment, opening the perineum, softening the buttocks, sensing the possibility of the intelligence underneath you, from that Celtic view, again, and I'm not posing this as something you should believe or take on, and most traditional cultures will have something similar to that, but that the landscape, the earth itself, is luminous. It's not mere matter. It has its own intelligence. It has intelligence that is luminous. Its landscape is also numinous. But from the ground up, through the backside, Breathing up through the belly, up through the heart, and spreading, widening you as, as Ajahn Sachito calls, an outcrop of nature. An outcrop of nature. Right? Sensing, suffusing the body with affectionate attention. As much as we're able, affectionate attention, suffusing and pervading the body. And in a moment, I'll invite you to open your eyes. But if you will, try on the perception that is no more or less valid than many others we have. That those beings, the fellows in this room, when you open your eyes, that we might see them and know them as the clay that has grown tall. And then my question, the inquiry for you is, what happens to your sense of yourself in this room and your sense of the other if you open and see through that lens? And by seeing, I mean visual seeing, I mean sensing, I mean feeling. 
So when you're ready, opening to that rather than that they're just competitors for the tea urn or, you know, but seeing each other for the moment as the clay that's grown tall. Took us, took us a long time to get here, you know, <laughs> to get to be upright. The eyes open, see the backs or the fronts. How does it affect you? Is it bearable? Is it just seem like a silly game? Where are you knowing from when you try on that perception? Is it just your eyes? Is your body know? How is the knowing happening? And how does it affect how you see each other? Like when I look at you through that lens, I'd really rather hear how you know it. Right, but there isn't time for that. But when I look out with that knowing, something in the middle of me here starts to soften. I actually feel a little teary when I look through this perception. There's a kind of melting which. And then there's a little mind that says, is it okay to melt at the front? You know, and you're giving a dharma talk, you can't melt. You have to be the clay that stays upright. And <laughs> so it's melting in the middle. And I think as we get more uh, confidence in our practice, then it is okay to melt. It doesn't mean we lose our intactness, our uprightness. When I see you from here, it doesn't make me want to, it doesn't make me excited. Other perceptions might. Makes me quite steady and cool, but my heart becomes very engaged. I would be very curious to know if this has any meaning for you and what happens to your perception when you look through this lens. Contrast this, this is possibly an unfair, abrupt shift, but if you want to, contrast this with these ones, a these beings here, a competition for interview slots on the, on the notice board. You may not have that. I, I know that very much, I think, coming from a big family. Of <laughs> right. But these, ones, these are the ones here, a competition for interviews. <laughs> I go immediately, and I don't, I, I even don't need an interview. I'm, I'm the one I'd have the interview with at this point. On this retreat, other retreat would be different. But as soon as I try it on and even play with it, it's like, right, okay, how, how am I going to gain the advantage? Right. Some of us might try that one on, it would be collapsing, like, oh, I'm never going to get it. Right. Depending again on lots of things. Maybe my history, definitely in this case, my history, my clay. Don't like that perception. Didn't lead onward. <laughs> Didn't lead toward the goal. If I think the goal is getting absolutely what I believe I think I want, we can still want, we can still incline, we can still give ourselves an opportunity. But if my agenda is fixed, then I might lose something of these multiple possibilities. I lose the, uh, the potential for flexibility and range of ways of knowing. And something in the psyche gets drier, tighter, less sacred. So I think I need to finish in a moment. Um, hmm. Maybe I'll finish with this quote I love very much from Thomas Merton, um, a monk 
Catholic monk, uh, from a silent order. He, I think he was a, a, in silence, absolute silence, maybe 35 years, something like that. Something for quite a long time until somewhere in the, the early 60s, he, he, his work, had, his inner work and outer work had, had come to such a place that he felt called into um, more engagement with social justice and um, such, such work. His work shifted, but a monk very much at heart. And sometimes I reflect and I think, and his, his work is very, it's very touching, very human, very deep. Uh, the silence, you can feel it pervading right through the writing, right almost like I can feel the silence through his flesh, that his words are coming right out of that silence. And this is a... Uh, Maybe I'll read both parts. Okay, I think I'll read one. I think there's just time for one. He says, One might say that I have decided to marry the silence of the forest, the sweet, dark warmth of the whole world will have to be my wife. Out of the heart of that dark warmth comes the secret that is heard only in silence, but it is the root of all secrets whispered by all the lovers in their beds all over the world. So perhaps I have an obligation to, pre- to preserve the stillness, the silence, the poverty, the virginal point of pure no-thingness that is at the center of all loves. I attempt to cultivate this plant without comment in the middle of the night and water it with psalms and prophecies in silence. It becomes the most rare of all trees in the garden. At once, the primordial paradise tree, the axis mundi, the cosmic axle. The sweet dark warmth of the whole world will have to be my wife. Out of the heart of that dark warmth comes the secret that is heard only in silence but it is the root of all secrets whispered by all the lovers in their beds all over the world. So perhaps I have an obligation to preserve the stillness, the silence, the poverty, the virginal point of pure no-thingness, of pure nothingness that is at the center of all loves. I attempt to cultivate this plant without comment in the middle of the night and water it with psalms and prophecies in the silence. It becomes the most rare of all trees in the garden, at once the primordial paradise tree, the axis mundi, the cosmic axle. So let's sit together in this silence for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.